This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Trump has made it clear that he'd like to silence his critics. What would it be like if he got his way, if there were no way to restrain him? Adam Hochschild says it would be sort of like the three-year period of censorship, mass imprisonment, and deportations during World War I under Woodrow Wilson. That's later in this hour. Also, maybe you heard the news, 50 people in six states were accused by the Justice Department of taking part in a major college admission scandal. They include Hollywood stars, business leaders, and elite college coaches. Amy Willens will comment. She'll also talk about the legal ways rich parents get their unqualified kids into elite colleges. For instance, Jared Kushner getting into Harvard. First up, the trouble with Beto. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, today we want to start by looking at the opposition to the progressive candidates in the Democratic primaries, the candidates who are challenging Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Of course, there are a lot, but at the top of the list, we have Beto and we also have Biden. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I thought the prospect made an excellent point this morning in Robert Kuttner's post about Beto. He said, this party, the Democratic Party, has had far too many young, charismatic leaders who were campaigning on a smile and a shoeshine and putting off deciding where they, what they stood for until later. Such candidates are ready-made to be the candidates of Wall Street, close quote. I wonder if that's your view of Beto. Well, to a large degree, yes. And later today, we put up a uh, something of a scoop by David Dayan, who will become the uh, executive editor of The Prospect come June 1, pointing out how a Wall Street guy whose uh, hedge fund is one of the vulture funds destroying Puerto Rico just made a sizable contribution to Beto. Uh, when you're a tabula rasa, uh, a lot of Wall Street thinks they can, uh, you know, uh, write on you, that you're the, you're the blank slate uh, on which they can inscribe uh, their desires, their wishes, uh, you know, forbidden fantasies and, and, and whatnot, which then gets the whole rest of the country into trouble. So uh, I do think that's the case. I don't know that necessarily the bright young thing alternative has to be a grumpy old man, but uh, <laughs> you know, the, the way this election is shaping up, it may turn out that way. Well, the latest polls uh, this week show Beto in fourth place, uh, Joe Biden and uh, Bernie uh, tied for first with 26% in the new Emerson poll. Uh, Kamala Harris at 12, Beto at 11, Elizabeth Warren at 8. Uh, Beto made a big splash when he announced raising money not from uh, hedge fund vulture capitalists, but in small contributions. Um, the total that he raised uh, in the 24 hours after he announced was more than anybody, including uh, Bernie. Beto raised $6.1 million in the first 24 hours. Bernie had raised $5.9 million, And, of course, that makes Beto a serious candidate right there. What do you make of those numbers? 
Well, he has, you know, I mean, he, he was phenomenally successful raising uh, uh, dollars in small amounts uh, digitally during his Senate campaign, and he still has that, you know, uh, th- that list uh, and that connection. So I, I suspect that was largely uh, the people who fell in love with him when he was running against Ted Cruz, some portion of them uh, funding him right away when he threw his hat in the ring. I think that's probably what that was. What, it, it, it's not you know, an interesting question to which no one has yet uh, provided an answer to, has gone through the, uh, the, the contributions, is, is whether how, how much of that $6.1 million comes from uh, new donors. One of the things we know about uh, Bernie's support is someone has done that since this was already, you know, a month or two ago. And so someone has called the records of Bernie contributors and found out that a lot of them are first-timers. They're not just people hmm. who gave to him in the $27 average of 2016. These are some new folks. So it would be interesting to see when someone does this same kind of deep dive into Beto whether that's uh, that's the case or this is entirely the people who were giving to him when he was running against Ted Cruz. Well, the New York Times recently did an ups- uh, a, a deep dive into uh, Beto's vote in the Texas Senate campaign, and they concluded, this is the, the upshot at the New York Times, that Beto's strength in the Senate race in Texas came almost exclusively from white voters. Those of us thought who he had gotten an exceptional turnout among Hispanic voters are wrong, according to the New York Times, the uh, the upshot. Um, he won basically by winning over whites who had voted for Republicans and who voted for Republicans in races other than the Senate. Um, but it's not the vision that we have of the future a Democratic electorate uh, being more Latino, more multicultural. Um, certainly that is no, going to... Certainly not in Texas. I mean, yeah. first of all, I mean, Texas has been moving towards being a purple state for some time now. I mean, Hillary uh, only lost it by eight points, uh, which was a, a smaller margin than uh, Obama had lost Texas by. Uh, so uh, Texas is moving anyway, and yes, Nate Cohen in, in the upshot did uh, run the numbers and, and find that Beto pretty much underperformed uh, with Latino Texas, and that if he had done as well in Latino Texas and turning out the vote, uh, indeed, even if as, as Hillary had done, uh, he, he might well have won. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a myth that shattered. And, you know, some of the reports on Beto, there have been some deep dives into his background, uh, the, the prospected one by, uh, by Chris Hooks. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, others in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, and certainly a relatively centrist Democrat emerges with uh, deep pockets of Republican support in Texas, largely uh, people uh, who have connections to his father-in-law, who is the leading Republican businessman in uh, in El Paso and uh, uh, someone who has profoundly uh, helped Beto's career. Well, Beto has taken stands on some issues. Let me just run down his more progressive 
positions uh, and ask which of these you think the, are the most significant. He supports the abolition of for-profit private prisons. He supports a ban on assault weapons. He, he supports the elimination of uh, bail. Um, he has criticized Trump's border wall very strongly. Um, he Some of that, I mean, that, that's, a, you know, I mean, you, you, you have to do that if you're in El Paso. The yeah. Republican uh, member of Congress who represents a border district in Texas also opposes the wall. Yeah, the, I mean, that's, yeah that's, a yeah. Good, that's a good point. He, um, he, during the Senate campaign, he, he called for the impeachment of President uh, Trump. It's not clear he's going to uh, make that an important part of his presidential campaign. Uh, he supported the minimum wage of $15. He supported not exactly Medicare for all, but a more, let's call it, moderate proposal to allow anyone who wants to enroll in a insurance plan like Medicare uh, he opposes the death penalty. Uh, so these are these are kind of uh, liberal positions, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and and I think they're the positions that are pretty much uh, at the epicenter of where the Democratic Party is right now. Uh, and I would suspect that that he will, um, you know, largely uh, try to do that and bridge the gap between uh, the, the the center left and the left in the Democratic Party. Uh, he's sufficiently unformed that he he can he can do that so long as he isn't uh, compelled by uh, questioners to get too specific. Uh, and so far, he has managed to avoid specificity while on the campaign trail. So we shall we shall see where this goes. There are many debates which uh, which loom uh, you know in the weeks and months ahead. And what's your understanding of why he did so well with white voters in the Texas Senate race, especially college-educated white voters? He did uh, better than Hillary had done, better than Obama had done, uh, still not a lot. He got, I think, 33% of the votes of college-educated whites in Texas. This is, again, according well, but to... This is, this, is, this is true of every Democrat running in 2018. Uh, they all did better with college-educated whites because uh, a relatively large share of college-educated whites are completely revolted by Trump. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is a pattern that is, is discernible, you know, in every election in the country. So <laughs> I, I think this is more a question of when he was running, 2018, uh, and the, uh, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, Trump has uh, pushed the Republican Party to a place where a lot of college-educated whites who have some, you know, respect for empiricism and things like that uh, just uh, aren't willing to go. So, I, I, I mean, I, I think that the statement is much about 2018 as it is about Beto himself, which is not to say he wasn't, you know, a, a, a pretty pretty darn good candidate for Texas, but uh, as I said, Texas is moving, uh, and as the uh, upshot pointed out, uh, Texas is moving anyway, and uh, he Beto was not able to fully take advantage of that. Yeah, in fact, according to the upshot, Beto fared worse than Hillary or Obama four years before that in many of the state's heavily Hispanic areas, particularly in South Texas. That's actually kind of alarming, don't you think? 
Uh, I do, and uh, the uh, the story that we put up on the Prospect website about that uh, pointed out that he was uh, in, a, in a in a real battle with the uh, Latino barrio in El Paso, it's called Beto and the Barrio, Beto against the Barrio, uh, over the uh, uh, over a redevelopment plan, which would have you know leveled uh, some of the barrio. Uh, uh, and 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 so it's uh, you know it, it, there's there's a real uh, there's a real issue there and and then I don't know that the the kind of get out the vote effort uh, that was made in presidential campaigns was made in uh, in, in some of the uh, the Rio Grande Valley and other heavily Latino parts of Texas uh, during during 2018. Another factor explaining um, Beto's. Uh, relatively good performance in Texas is that he was running against Ted Cruz, one of the most unappealing people in the American political landscape this this year or, or really any other year. Uh, of course, Trump is one of the most unappealing political candidates of any of any year. That's true, but Trump has a really strong following, although uh, it is not, uh, let us hope, a majority. I mean, the polling doesn't show that. You know, Ted Cruz doesn't, I, I mean, I, I, Ted Cruz is not the kind of personality who I think evokes strong personal, uh, you know, favor, favorability uh, with, with just about anybody. I mean, Texas is a right-wing state in many ways still, and, and he's a, a exceedingly right-wing guy, but I don't think there's uh, the intensity of support for Cruz uh, in the right that there, there is for Trump. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson. We're looking at the uh, Democratic candidates who are not progressives, who are what are called moderates or mainstream or Wall Street Democrats. Not all, not all of those are the same people, of course. Uh, so who do the Wall Street Democrats want, if not Beto? Well, there's Joe Biden, who's, you know, at the top of the polls right now, and the Polls show he would beat Trump by something like 10 points if the election were held uh, this week. So why don't we just go with Joe Biden? Well, you know, Biden has, uh, this would be the third time he's run for president. And he, he flamed out in, in, in the other two. I mean, this is Biden before he uh, uh, actually enters the race. We don't know how we'll do this time out. He certainly has been around as an elected official since the early 70s which means a lot of baggage uh, and a lot of positions he took that uh, have to be explained away. Uh, Law and order positions that were widely popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, The same thing vexes the former district attorneys who are are, are running, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Kamala Harris. You know, DAs tended to act like DAs, which is to say pro-police, which gets them into issues of, of, of uh, the racial dynamics of policing, which is uh, oftentimes relatively some a euphemism for black suppression. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot there that, uh, uh, you know, doesn't really comport with where uh, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is today. And Biden certainly will have to deal with a lot of that, including is uh, uh, chairing the Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas and yeah. Bill, uh flare-up uh, when, when Thomas was uh, nominated to be on the court. And he did not call the corroborating uh, witnesses for Anita Hill, and we're not going to forgive him for that. We're uh, not going to forgive <laughs> him for that. And uh, speaking of Clarence Thomas, since he suddenly asked a question, 
uh, in, a, in the at the Supreme Court for the first time in a year uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, as the court was hearing uh, about a, a Mississippi prosecutor who had tried the same black man uh, six times uh, for murder, each time it being overturned, uh, largely because he keeps excluding blacks from juries. The only justice who seemed sympathetic to this white prosecutor was Clarence Thomas, which led me to think, you know, you have a certain number of blacks historically who have passed for whites, but Thomas is actually passing for a white racist, yes. uh, which is, oh, you know, is, is, is kind of a distinctive uh, attribute. I don't, not too many do that. Okay, I digress, but I <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Update, Clarence Thomas Speaks. That's page one news in America. Uh, yeah. Getting back to our central theme here of uh, the the centrist uh, or moderate or Wall Street candidates, the people who, who sort of dismiss Joe Biden say, well, he's only at the top of the polls because of name recognition. What what do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, there's something to that. I mean, he's he's been a vice president, and, uh, and no one else has come close come close to that. Uh, I, I think he does represent a segment of the Democratic Party, but I think uh, candidates like Beto will uh, actually, Beto is, I think, more of a threat to Biden than, you know, if you sort of play the uh, the game of who damages who most. Yeah. I think Beto could take more of, uh, of, of Biden's vote, which is, is less ideologically formed and not all that, uh, as, as certainly not as as left as the uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren cohort. Uh, so I, I think Beto, in an odd way, it may be a, a threat to Biden in particular. Yeah, I don't quite uh, understand the Biden, the appeal of Biden. I guess he's just sort of a reassuring reminder of the Obama days when when things were better, but people don't really know what his positions are on anything, as far as I know. Well, uh, a lot of support for candidates isn't based necessarily Excellent on point. candidate's position. Excellent point. You know, that... Biden is a very comfortable old shoe, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, uh, he, he fits that mode, and, you know, nothing disastrous happened while he was vice president, at least that the administration came <laughs> yeah, forward with. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We are very interested in issues. Most voters are not very interested in issues. Most voters don't know anything about issues. There's all this appalling political science research. Uh, <clears throat> my, my favorite one was research during the, uh, the George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, uh, campaign um, where the thing that most th the fact about him that was known by most voters was that he didn't like broccoli. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, but I mean, you know, voters get a sense uh, from afar uh, filtered through the candidate's yeah. own uh, advertising and presentation at the media, uh, what the media seizes upon, of, of you know, sort of they get a, a vague sense of who the candidate is and whether he kind of is on their side. And that, uh, you know, I mean, for most people, that, that's uh, pretty much uh, what determines it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is running with more specific platform positions early than anyone I can, I can recall. Uh, that hasn't exactly led her to surge in the polls. No, it's striking that although... In many ways, her proposals are much more specific, detailed, and good than Bernie's. Uh, she doesn't seem to be pulling any of Bernie's supporters away, or am I wrong about that? 
Uh, I think you're largely right. I mean, Bernie has a hardcore, which he's maintained. Uh, and, you know, this is the advantage of his having run in 2016. He has a national following already that, that's hard for Warren to break into. And then Warren has been sort of continually, you know, you talk about old man Bush and the broccoli. Uh, she has the uh, Indian yeah. uh, Native American Pocahontas thing. That That's what probably the largest number of Americans know about her is that, that whole kerfuffle. Which you know is is of, of <laughs> to put it you know minuscule significance compared to everything else she talks about. But I think that's that that's uh, what uh, what people know about her. And I know some I know some Democrats who do follow politics who think uh, she she got saddled with that, like Hillary was saddled with a lot of stuff, and it's yeah. going to be very hard for her to get. Uh, out from under it. Well, most people don't follow the issues, but certainly the Wall Street people have followed Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a wealth tax. They know what that means, and they know what they need to do to stop it, and that's why they would be interested in Joe Biden or, or, or Beto. Yeah, and push comes to shove. If it were Warren or Bernie, that's why they would be interested in Trump. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, there, there was, there was a, uh, a, a, a New York Times business section piece by, uh, Andrew Sorkin this week, noting that, uh, about three quarters of the, uh, candidate donations made by 1500 CEOs that, uh, he had researched, uh, went to Republicans, even in the age of Trump. So, uh, uh you know, there's a bottom line, uh, affinity for uh, Wall Street and, and such. And, uh, you know, there's no question that the Republican tax cut yeah. uh, benefited them to the exclusion of damn near everyone else, and they're appreciative. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Bernie is in Southern California uh, this today, this week. He did a big rally with union members at UCLA yesterday. Right. Is a big event downtown at Grand Park Saturday, speaking at 2.30. Uh, let's just review where Bernie stands at this point. Well, Bernie enters in a, in a pretty strong position, particularly if Elizabeth Warren fails to chip away at, at his level of support. Um, that's, I mean, you could, you could envision uh, this thing coming down to, uh, a three or four way, uh, fight with, uh, Bernie, Biden, Kamala Harris, maybe Beto, um, uh, possibly Warren, although I think that's remote, but this is all before the debates and, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say that they, they might, they, they might produce some changes. But Bernie's claim to his uh, his vast ocean of supporters uh, is still pretty strong, and it's it's hard to see what would weaken that. Um, Kamala Harris is, is is I think if you're if you're betting uh, uh, an interesting option. Uh, uh, there's some early states that might favor her. Uh, certainly, South Carolina and the southern states, maybe California. Uh, she's kind of positioned, as it were, between uh, Bernie and Biden. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's hard to handicap, and I, and I won't beyond that. We care about the issues. Maybe we're the only ones. Harold Meyerson, read him at the American Prospect at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John.
I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, college admission scams, starting with Jared Kushner. That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, what would it look like if Trump succeeded in silencing his critics? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. But first, maybe you heard the news. 50 people in six states were accused by the Justice Department last week of taking part in a major college admission scandal. They include Hollywood stars, business leaders, and elite college coaches. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was also Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post, and lots more. She's best known for her work on Haiti, including the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. 33 parents were charged in the case, along with others who received money. How did this work? You're a rich person. You want to make sure your kids get into USC or Yale or Stanford or Georgetown. So so you pay for what exactly? Well, it depends what you need. That is to say what you believe your child is missing in his or her application. Say you got your original SATs back, not so hot, You need higher scores on the SAT. Your kid has some problems, maybe you think, with ADD or ADHD. So you get a doctor to sign a note saying your kid has this problem. And then you get a special test session because you have this problem. And then you get a single proctor special test session and you pay the proctor to give you a better score on your SAT. But you don't pay the proctor directly because that would be wrong. (laughs) That would be wrong. The proctor is in a league with a company that fixes all these things, and that is the company at the heart of the scandal. That company is called the Edge College and Career Network, also known as The Key, and run by a guy named William Singer, who is the founder of this college preparatory business. He used the key and its arm, Key Worldwide Foundation, as a front to allow those parents to make contributions to that foundation, which apparently has 501c3 status. So that means it's deductible from federal taxes. And then the foundation paid bribes to those test proctors. So there's tax fraud, uh, a federal offense. And I particularly like the name The Edge and The Key because the implication fully and right out there is that what gives you the edge and what is the key to college admissions is money. And there is one other way to get into college courtesy of The Edge and The Key, and that is if your kid is an athlete, Athletic coaches can can recommend admission. But what if your kid is not an athlete? They found coaches who are amenable to taking some money to say that these kids were really fabulous. I looked at their uh, resume and their, their athletic achievement is astounding in water polo, crew, tennis, uh, all the things provided by the elite private schools. But actually, 
it turned out many of those kids were not athletes at all, had never been on those teams, or there were no teams at all like that at the school they went to. How much did these services cost the parents? Some parents paid 250000 or even $275,000 to have their kids admitted. Uh, Lori Lachlan, um, the actress, paid 250000 per daughter. You can arrange to have an SAT test proctor bribed. You can arrange to have an athletic coach bribed. What about people like Jared Kushner? He got into Harvard back in 1998. How much did Jared Kushner's father give Harvard? $2.5 million. And uh, how do you know that's why he was admitted? Maybe he deserved admission to Harvard. There was a great report in ProPublica on this in which the reporter uh, went to the Frisch School in Paramus, New Jersey, which was Jared's school, and got a quote from a former official there who said there was no way anybody in the administrative office of the school thought that Jared would, on the merits, get into Harvard. His GPA did not warrant it. His SAT scores did not warrant it. We thought for sure there was no way this was going to happen. Then, lo and behold, Jared was accepted, still part of the quote from the former official. It was a little bit disappointing because there were at the time other kids we thought should really get in on the merits, and they did not. But isn't it true that Jared ended up graduating from Harvard with honors? With honors, please. 90% of the Harvard graduating class graduates with honors. Jared Kushner's father gave Harvard $2.5 million to get Jared into Harvard, is that why Jared Kushner's father went to federal prison? You mean, is he like the ones now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, that's in fact not why he went to federal prison. (laughs) The scandal that landed him in prison is way even more colorful than this one, if you can believe it. Five years after Jared entered Harvard, his father pleaded guilty, this was in 2004, to tax violations, illegal campaign donations, and retaliating against a witness who happened to be his brother-in-law. And, interesting side note, as it happens, Chris Christie was the prosecutor on this case. The story is amazing. Charles Kushner hired a prostitute to seduce his sister's husband, his own brother-in-law, who was cooperating with federal authorities in the case against Charles Kushner. Kushner then had a videotape of the proceedings conducted by the prostitute sent to his sister. He was sentenced to two years in federal prison. That my friends, is the father of the president's son-in-law. And, of course, there's one other effective way parents can get their kids into Harvard or Yale or Princeton that's perfectly legal and that doesn't cost them money. Yes, legacy is an old, long-standing, corrupt method for getting your kids into these schools. Legacy admissions, it's it's a funny name, but what it really means is not that you've left a legacy to the school of money, but that you have gone to the school and the legacy you're giving them is your children. We should do some disclosure here. I know you have three kids who went to college. Did you donate $2.5 million to Harvard or give them a library? No. First of all, I have three sons and one went to Harvard and I went to Harvard. But isn't he the brilliant mathematician who's continued to do fantastic things in that field? Yeah. And i trust and believe that's what got him in because really no library has my name on it on the campus. Okay. <laughs> um, but legacy is dying out. It used to be that legacy kids were largely rich kids. 
But now, because of the creeping meritocracy, which is not fully installed, obviously, legacy kids aren't always from America's oldest and wealthiest families. So it's been easier for schools to drop this policy slowly. And there's one more thing about the, the what they call the side door of getting in via athletic excellence. What the defenders of this practice say is that it benefits poor black kids who are, you know, great at basketball or, or football. And therefore, we want to have athletic admissions separate from academic admissions. Right. You would think it would be urban black kids and like middle of the country white kids who play baseball really well who are getting in. But that's not really true. First of all, not many black kids row crew or play golf or sail. And they do get into the Ivy League for their own sports, but the Ivy League is not known for its college baseball or basketball team, so not the best athletes go there. We've been talking here about the parents. What about the kids in in these cases? Do you see them as as uh, victims of their parents' uh, ambitions and anxieties? Or, or, or are the kids, or at least some of the kids, complicit? Kids who share their parents' values, who think it's great to beat the system, which shows that you're, you're not a loser, like uh, all those stupid kids who've been studying. Yeah, I think a lot of the kids are complicit and share their parents' values. They're their parents' kids. Um, and so, like, the president right now who, when asked about paying taxes and whether you should pay taxes, he said, you know, it's smart business not to pay taxes. Of course, we don't know whether he did it legally. But one of my favorite kids in this scandal is Olivia Jade Giannulli, who is the daughter of Laurie Lachlan and Massimo Giannulli. Uh, He's a fashion designer and she's the actress. Uh, She really fascinates me. She had a 1.2 million following on Instagram before the scandal. And now she has a 1.4 million following, (laughs) even though she stopped posting. But judging by her Instagram feed, she is, she does share poor values. Like she's a fashion child with nothing in her head. She is a uh, product placement person who works for Sephora or worked for Sephora before Sephora dumped her because of the scandal. Um, But she consistently shows those same bad materialistic values and I love this. In an interview on the Zach Zang show, whatever that is, my friends, you may tell me, okay. it was posted on March 8th. She said about her father, and this is a quote, he didn't come from a lot, so it's cool to see that he built it all himself. That's, to my mind, a very American thing to say. Uh, she goes on, he, like, built his whole entire brand, and he wasn't actually, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, ever enrolled in college, but he, like, faked his way through it, and then he started his whole business with tuition money that his parents thought was going to college. That's like such a different time. I don't know if it was suppo- if I was supposed to say that, but it's okay. So you can see that it's, it's passed down through the generations, and she knows a lot about cheating. Some people say the children in these wealthy families are victims of this, not perpetrators. But come on, they had to be coached. They had to agree suddenly that they had ADD. They had to pretend that they were on the polo team, at least in front of any interviewer from the college. I mean, I think if you look broadly, the real victims are kids who should have gotten in, whose places these kids took, and that's really unfair. So what is to be done? There's a lot of suggestions out there. Senator Ron Wyden 
is proposing a bill to eliminate the tax deduction for contributions to colleges from uh, parents while their kids are applying. What do you think of that? Uh, It seems wrongheaded because then they'll just donate before their kids apply. Their kids are there for 17 years before they apply to college. So they can donate year one, assuming their child is going to make it all the way to college age. And then the college will remember. The college always remembers. If you give Princeton a library in the year 2000, your kid will go there three years later and your grandchild will go there 25 years later. Of course, there's a couple of other proposals about what is to be done. Uh, USC where half of all the students who were in families accused of these crimes were uh, our students. USC is not allowing them to enroll because they got in fraudulently. I wonder if you agree with that. I have to agree with that approach. I mean, I feel sorry for the kids who didn't actually actively participate with their parents in the scam, if there are any such. But really, USC has to do that or its name is, is valueless. And what about uh, larger uh, solutions like reducing the importance of standardized tests on which it's possible to bribe the proctors or maybe eliminating them? What about eliminating legacy admissions? I think both of those things are good ideas. But, you know, legacy kids will still apply. And then if you admit them, have you admitted a legacy child? But yeah, eliminating them as a policy would be a good idea. And also... I think eliminating standardized tests is a great idea because I hate standardized testing. But um, the colleges have to have a way to judge people. I think it's a really bad way. I think they should have some method for online interviewing of every single person, you know, who has a decent uh, application. Last question. The big picture here. What is this scandal really about? Well, for me, what the scandal is really about is not the fact that admissions were bought and gained fraudulently. It's about the fact that the colleges and universities involved were not, as they usually are, the recipients of the funds used to buy the place in the entering class. The system itself is a fraud, you know? And colleges use admissions as a fundraising device. That should be criminal. These parents who are involved in the current scandal, although they're wealthy, are not of the class to buy a building or make a $2.5 million investment. The scandal is really, to me, about class. The way for these people to buy a spot for their kids is through fraud. Note, all of these people are up-and-coming people, not of the social status of the Adamses or the Peabody's or the Quincy families of the Boston Brahmins, many of whom get into Harvard still automatically as what we call colonial legacy. (laughs) The Janoulis and the Huffman-Macy kids are of a rising class of moneyed strivers. You'll note that most of these things happened at USC, in the land of Hollywood, where people are very, very strivy. In a sense, they're being penalized for their inability to donate much larger amounts to the universities themselves. They have to commit a crime to get their dumb kids in, Mm. you know? So poor kids have to be fabulous students or athletes, and very ambitious and aggressive. Similarly, middle-income kids. Upper-middle-class Arivists, let's call them virtual Kardashians, (laughs) Um, like the people involved in this scandal, they have to pay unless their kids happen to be brilliant. But they won't make the huge investment required by the colleges, so they commit fraud, and the rich give libraries or wings or art collections, etc. One added note, if the Ivy League and other premier universities became actually meritocratic, America would change. 
these schools are a bulwark of the old elites. In fact, these scammers, if you look at it this way, were pushing against a wall of privilege, as well as taking the spots of deserving honest students. Unfortunately, they're also criminals. Amy Willens. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, what it might look like if Trump succeeded in silencing his critics. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, The Scholar's Circle with Maria Armudian. But first, Trump has made it clear that he'd like to silence his critics. He'd like censorship of the media and jail or deportation for activists and people he considers enemies. What, it would, what would it be like if he got his way, if there were no way to restrain him? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. He's an award-winning writer on social justice. I think my favorite of his many books is Bury the Chains. It's about the first movement to mobilize people against slavery. It succeeded at abolishing the slave trade in England in 1807. He teaches journalism at Berkeley. His new book is Lessons from a Dark Time. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Hi, John. It's good to be with you. Well, you open your new book with a bold and original idea, what Trump would like to do to his critics, another president actually succeeded at doing. Tell us about that. That's true. Um, Let's roll back the clock a little over 100 years and listen to that president talking to Congress. I'll read you a quote from uh, something he said in 1915. There are citizens of the United States, I blush to admit, born under other flags, who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. Woodrow Wilson talking to Congress in 1915. Amazing. uh, Gearing up for a period of severe repression, in some ways, I think, the most serious such period we've experienced here in the United States from 1917 to 1920. I mean, I'm putting aside, you know, slavery, which was horrible repression of a different sort, but when you talk about repression of civil liberties, we always tend to think of the McCarthy era, but actually I think that period, 1917 to 1920, uh, was the worst. Well, when I was in high school, I blush to say Woodrow Wilson was my favorite president because he wanted to end all wars, he wanted a League of Nations that nations that would prevent future wars. He supported the eight-hour day. He supported votes for women. He signed the first income tax and the first antitrust act. And he'd been a history professor and and a university (laughs) president. What what could be better than that? Then I went to college. Then I learned about the stuff in in your uh, book. Uh, 
let's start about his attacks on on immigrants that you have just quoted us for his speech about. Uh, who exactly did he go over go after, and uh, how did he uh, succeed? Well, several things were driving him. I think at the one was right from really from the beginning, and you can find quotes on this from the the history book that he wrote. He was one of the people who felt as did uh, millions of Americans uh, uh, at that time who were descended from uh, people who'd been here for a few generations who were mainly of, of British and German stock. They felt the, the country was being polluted by all these unwashed immigrants, poor Jews from Eastern Europe, people from Southern Italy, uh, and the, you know, the Irish uh, Catholics, and that this was changing the sort of Anglo-Saxon America that they had always uh, imagined existed. But of course, America was never all Anglo-Saxon. There were Native Americans here, there were enslaved Africans here, and so forth. But that was part of what was driving him. Then two other things happened. The United States entered the First World War, and that unleashed a tide of nasty patriotic chauvinism such as we've never really seen here. There's nothing like a war to sort of get people whipped up against, you know, imagined subversives everywhere. And then fast on the heels of that, in fact, almost simultaneously came the two stages of the Russian Revolution, culminating in uh, November 1917 when the Bolsheviks uh, seized power. And the people who ran the United States, the captains of industry, you know, the presidents, senators, and so forth, were terrified that something like that might happen here, as were governments all over Western Europe. And that really increased uh, the repression. And I, as I say, I think it was the worst civil liberties crisis that the U.S. has ever seen. So censorship of the media, of course, is another one of Trump's uh, dreams, uh, Woodrow Wilson actually succeeded, you point out, in Lessons from a Dark Time. How did he do it? What was the method? Well, what was the system? He, he uh, got Congress to pass, pass laws giving him the powers to do these various things. The person who was in char charge of his assault on the media was Sidney Albert Burleson, who was the attorney general. Uh, and uh, sorry, the postmaster general. Why the postmaster general? Because the postmaster general could regulate what traveled through the mail, and newspapers and magazines of all kinds, uh, uh, you know, especially those that were you know weeklies and monthlies published by political organizations, depended on the mail to reach their subscribers, and Burleson. Uh, either censored whole issues of various publications or shut down uh, either censoring single issues or shutting down entirely 75 different publications over the wow. course of that three-year period. And they were particularly afraid of publications that were published in languages other than English, of which there were a lot because there were yeah. so many recent immigrants from Europe who preferred to read something in Serbo-Croatian or German or Italian or something else. 
And they passed a regulation saying that any of these foreign language publications, if they published anything to do with the war or commenting on the U.S. government or on one of the allied powers, that had to be translated into English and shown to the post office before it could be sold, before it could be, 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 mailed. be mailed. And, of course, that was a, a ruinous expense. And, uh, you know, a lot of these publications just shut down. And for English language publications, what were they targeting? What did they not allow to go through the mails? Well, they were very vague about it. They said, you know, anything which which questions the war effort or casts doubt on our allies. And Burleson refused to spell these things out in more detail. A delegation of lawyers, including Clarence Darrow, went to see him, but he didn't want to give them any more detail because, of course, any kind of edict like that is more threatening if it's vague. Yeah. Um, what they were really afraid of were, were two things. One would be anything that would threaten the war effort, mm-hmm. and closely related to that, anything that would, uh, you know, help uh, foment strikes, uh, the militant wing of the labor movement. The group that, above all, uh, the government wanted to crush and really did succeed in crushing was the Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW. Uh, They put more than 100 Wobblies on trial, brought them in freight cars from uh, all over the country to Chicago. They had a months-long trial, uh, sentenced them all to long terms in prison, uh, raided uh, simultaneously, one day in 1917, four dozen wobbly offices all over the country, all the offices that the group had, confiscated tons and tons of material, never gave it back. Uh, several years later, it was always it, it was uh, burned. So mm-hmm. wobbly history literally went up in smoke. I <coughs> excuse me. I want to uh, underline here that one of the important features of this period was that opposition to World War, World War America's entry into World War One and participation in World War One was actually pretty widespread uh, in the public and even in Congress. Isn't that true? It's true. Uh, in Congress, there were six senators who voted against the declaration of war, the most conspicuous of whom was Robert La Follette, the the great progressive from Wisconsin, who when Wilson gave his speech to Congress demanding a declaration of war, La Follette stood there chewing gum with his arms crossed. Hmm. Uh, Five other senators joined him, and I believe roughly 50 members of the House of Representatives were also against the declaration of war. Um, And actually, the historian Michael Kazin, who's written about this period, uh, added up the numbers and found that there was a greater percentage of American men eligible for the draft who either went underground, didn't register, refused to go, simply disappeared when the government came looking for them than there was during the Vietnam War. Well, we need to find out what lessons can be drawn when American democracy was undermined so dramatically by the president. We're interested, of course, in the parallels to our own time. How come Wilson was able to succeed so thoroughly? Why wasn't there more effective opposition? And how does that, I mean, today it seems like there's a lot of opposition to Trump in a lot of different places. Uh, Let's draw the comparisons here. Yeah. 
There is, and I'm actually, uh, paradoxically, despite these Trumpian times we're living in, I, I have a little more faith in the system of checks and balances working today uh, than I would have in 1917-1918. One reason is that we are not engaged in a full-scale war. Wars are always terrible for civil liberties. Uh, And, you know, yes, we do have troops, you know, fighting in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth, but it's not the kind of overarching all-out effort that the world wars was so i think that has made a different atmosphere today um but i think another uh, lesson we can take besides making sure those checks and balances uh, function well is that the media has to be really really skeptical uh and i feel the media is a stronger voice for truth today than it was in that period 1917 to 1920. You look at how the media covered the repression that went on because there were literally thousands of radicals who were arrested in that period and sent to prison. Rarely in the mainstream press of the day, which meant daily newspapers, and we still do have a few of them left today. Uh, Mainly the mainstream press went along with this, cheerled for it, uh, you know, didn't, didn't protest in an outspoken way. So I think the media is tremendously important. Another lesson that I took is that, um, you know, sometimes a determined person who may not be at the top of the bureaucracy, but is somewhere in the middle, can, by following the law and his or her conscience, really have an effect. Now, extreme right-wingers would call this the deep state. Yes. But there was an interesting example uh, in 1919-20. There were somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 undocumented uh, immigrants who were arrested during that period, this is the the period of they call the Palmer Raids, named after Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. The government wanted to deport these people. These were folks who were immigrants. Some of them had not gotten naturalized properly as American citizens, or the government was able to find some sort of fault with how they had been naturalized. They arrested somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 people. Palmer was assisted by his deputy, J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. Uh, The Justice Department had the power to arrest these people and lock them up, you know, for weeks and months at a time. But deportations were controlled by the Immigration Bureau, which was under the Department of Labor. And there there was a guy named Louis F. Post, who was a progressive former newspaper man, sort of inconspicuous-looking guy with rimless glasses and a Van Dyke beard, uh, and he followed the law. And he was able to stop about half of these deportations. He canceled search warrants. He restored habeas corpus rights for people who were detained, uh, reduced or eliminated bail for many of them. It earned him the undying hatred of J. Edgar Hoover, who unsuccessfully orchestrated a campaign by the American Legion for post-dismissal. When that didn't work or tried to organize people in Congress to impeach Post, 
Uh, that didn't work either, and the Sky Post was able to pre- prevent about 3,000 people from being deported. So, and I've seen examples of similar things in, in, in other countries that were going through authoritarian or totalitarian periods where sometimes a middle-ranking bureaucrat, you know, who follows the law, follows conscience, can actually do something good. Adam Hochschild. His new book is Lessons from a Dark Time. It's a collection of essays about people who took a stand against despotism or spoke out against unjust wars and government surveillance and who fought for a more just world. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure, John. And voices like yours, your show, Pacifica, KPFK, we need them more than ever these days. Thank you for saying that. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect talked about Beto and Biden. Amy Willens commented on college admission scams from Jared Kushner to Hollywood. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Maria Armudian with Scholars Circle. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.